We greet you tonight in the name of Christ one more time. And I say that purposefully. We, uh, we take for granted that we're going to have the privilege of seeing another day. We, we take for granted that we're going to be able to live an average lifespan and that we're going to expect to see each other from time to time. But we do need to remember that we're mortals. We're not here to stay. And changes come. Uh, changes come in life. The Lord's coming back one of these times. And so I think it's appropriate to remind each other that we are meeting just one more time. So I trust each of you had a good day. Uh, certainly was a beautiful fall day and reason to be thankful and grateful, even though I trust that our joy uh, runs a little deeper than the fact that it was a beautiful day. All right, uh, each evening we're reviewing a hymn. The one I've uh, chosen this evening kind of goes with the message. Uh, I'm going to ask the song leader to lead us in this song after we review the history. Uh, this is called Let the Lower Lights Be Burning, and it's in Church Hymnal, page 515, also Life Song 303. Let the Lower Lights Be Burning was written by Philip Paul Bliss, or P.P. Bliss, as we see noted in a lot of the song books. He wrote a number of songs. Uh, his lifespan was from 1838 to 1876. He was born in Pennsylvania, in northern Pennsylvania. Uh, his home is about one mile from where the Union Valley Mennonite Church is, if you were ever at that church. there's the, His home is now a, a little museum. It's not open to the public. However, the public has access to it, but you need to need to call to uh, make prior arrangements to, uh, to get in there. And I never did, so I don't know what's there. But uh, every time I go by there, I keep thinking, I want to go there sometime, but I haven't done it yet. P.P. Bless was musically gifted. There was, he could rarely hear a good story without thinking about it in, in the form of song, in the form of verse. Uh, he came from a very poor family. Uh, he had no opportunity to learn music. Uh, he learned, the first time he heard a pi uh, somebody play the piano for the first time, he was a 10-year-old boy, and he was so fascinated by this music that he entered the house where the young lady was playing, and he sat down behind her, and all of a sudden she realized she had an audience, and he said to her, play some more, and she was upset for him barging into her house, and she rebuked him for coming and sent this barefooted boy speedily on to his home. Uh, as an adult, he uh, was everything from a farm worker to a sawmill operator. He, uh, he worked in the logging camps as a, as a lumber cook in, back in the 1800s was a time when the hemlock uh, logging for hemlock trees was at its peak. And so he worked in these camps with these very rough men. And then at a later time, he was converted and gave his heart to the Lord. And uh, he dedicated his life to, to uh, the praise of God and to writing songs expressive of his religious experience. And so he wrote a number of very meaningful uh, 
gospel songs. He had also conducted singing schools for approximately 10 years. And it was during this time that he started uh, receiving royalties for some of the songs that he had written. And uh, he received an amount of $30,000, which was quite a sum of money back in those days for, for these songs. But despite his own uh, financial condition, he turned the entire amount over to further evangelistic uh, work. He was very interested in reaching others for the gospel. He, later he worked for D.L. Moody's evangelistic team. And uh, I have a section here I'm going to read. One night he was listening closely as Dwight L. Moody was preaching. The eloquent minister told a true story concerning the captain of a boat that was nearing the Cleveland Harbor on a dark and stormy night. Added to the dangers from wild winds and mountainous waves was the further hazard of trying to approach the harbor when not a single star could be seen in the blackened sky. The captain, seeing but one light from a lighthouse, asked the pilot, are you sure this is Cleveland? Quite sure, the pilot re replied. Where are the lower lights? He asked again. Gone out, sir, the pilot answered. Can you make the, har the harbor? He asked a third time. We must or we perish, sir, was the reply. Despite the strong hand and brave heart of the man at the wheel, in the darkness he missed the channel, and the vessel crashed upon the rocks with great loss of life. Moody concluded with exhortation, the master will take care of the great lighthouse. Let us keep the lower lights burning. That very night, P.P. Uh, Bliss went home where he was staying, and he wrote this song, Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But, let us, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seamen you may rescue, you may save. He, sang, he wrote a lot of other familiar songs, such as uh, Almost Persuaded, Dare to be a Daniel, The Light of the World is Jesus, I'm so glad that Jesus loves me, Man of Sorrows, what a name, More holiness give me, Wonderful words of life, I will sing of my Redeemer. Just to mention a few. He came to a tragic and untimely death at the age of 38 on December 29, 1876. He and his wife were on the way to D.L. Moody's evangelistic campaign in Chicago uh, by train, and there was a train wreck in Ashtabula, Ohio, and he himself would have survived. But he chose to rescue his wife, and in the process, he and his wife uh, perished together. So, ask the song leader to lead us in that song. Number 515 in the church hymnal, or 303 in the life songs. <laughs> Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send the gleam across the way. Some poor faith. 
song leader for that. All right, we're going to continue this evening on the Sermon of the Mount. I've entitled the message tonight, The Influence of Kingdom People. And for a theme, the Christian's effect on the world around us. And the portion of scripture we're going to look at is in Matthew 5, 13 through 19. And uh, let me read. Ye are the light of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, but, the, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? Is it thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men? You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's three areas of influence that we see that kingdom people have on the world around us. And those areas are the salt, the light, and the law. And that's what we'd like to look at this evening. And again, we notice uh, verse 13, it says, ye are. We are continuing the thought about Christian character. Ye are. We see that twice. 
a continuation of the character of, continue, of, of kingdom people. And so really tonight's message is a continuation of last night's messages, uh, last night's message. Uh, ye are, ye are alerts us to the fact that these things are not optional. It's not what we ought to be, but it's what we actually are in both public and in private. The influence that we have on the world is not what we pretend to be or profess to be, but what, what we actually are. And what we profess is usually not very powerful unless it's backed up by what we practice. And so we do, we, we do have an effect on the world around us, and, and the potential for that is, is oftentimes greater than I think we realize or even understand. Uh, just what kind of community would this be if there were no Christians here? We oftentimes don't think of it in that sense. Uh, sometimes we uh, get a little uh, put out when we see a lot of a lot of Christians of one particular denomination living on a pile. But the fact remains is that even if there is a concentration of a lot of those Christians, there's a profound effect that they have upon their community. And so never underestimate the effect that you have on your neighborhood just by simply being you and allowing the character of Christ to flow out through your life. Uh, Reputation is what people think you are, but character is who you really are. And who you really are is the message that people get. It's the message that people see. It's the message that people receive. All right, let's uh, look at the salt in verse 13. One of the interesting thoughts that... I came across in reference to salt is that salt is salt is a lot like human nature. Uh, it comes from the earth. It's very earthy, just like you and I are. Uh, it's full of dirt and impurities. And, and it's interesting that Christ uses this very earthy thing to help us to grasp the effect that we can have on the world around us. Now, salt needs to be refined before it can use, be used. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not very cleanly or even healthy to use salt that's unrefined. I don't know if you ever came across any, uh, past any salt mines, but uh, you know they, they have salt quarries that look a lot like stone quarries, and it has a lot of dirt mixed in it before it goes through the, through the uh, purification process. And so it is. In our lives, we are very earthy. Our lives are full of dirt. They're full of filth. And, and we're not going to be very effective in our world around us until we have been refined. And so the messages that we're looking at this evening are, is for those people who have been refined by the Lord Jesus Christ, who have gone through the purification process of having our lives cleaned up through the power of the shed blood of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so we see the all-surpassing power of God 
rests on those who are earthen vessels. God has, God has not chosen any other method to proclaim the eternal truths of the Word of God. He has called you and I to be the salt of the earth. We have been allowed, we have, have we allowed the grace of God uh, to transform our lives so that we're a positive influence and on our community, and not, on, not only in our community, but in the world around us. Now, it doesn't say that you are the sugar of the earth. You know, I guess there's, there's, there's something in all of us that, that uh, we just kind of like those people that are sweet and reasonable. And, you know, there's not necessarily uh, anything wrong with being like that. However, we need to recognize that salt is also an irritant. Uh, a salty Christian is not always going to be the sweet, gentle person that we would think they ought to be. Uh, we are not, uh, it, it, it's salt is an irritant. And, and it's especially that way to a festering sore. Our witness is an irritant where the festering sore of sin exists. It's probably going to be a reaction to your life. It's going to be a reaction to the things you do, the things you say, where sin is present. That's just kind of the way it works. We can't get away from it. Uh, the reason that Cain slew Abel was because he offered a more excellent sacrifice than he did. And I think it's more than a coincidence that these verses here, uh, verses 13 and 14, follow what Jesus described in verses 10 to 12, where he talks about persecution. And so we can anticipate that if we're going to be salty Christians, that there's going to be some reaction to your life's testimony. There's going to be some reaction to who you really are. We can, we can expect that. However, salt is more than just an irritant. Uh, I mean, I'm sure all of us probably at some time or another have experienced uh, salt on a, on a wound and, and how it feels. Well, that's kind of the way it works spiritually as well. But salt is also used as, as a healing balm. It can be uh, used in Epsom salt. I know uh, today's generation uh, doesn't know what Epsom salt is anymore, but I remember my mom using Epsom salt. And I particularly remember it because as a young man, I, uh, I guess was probably more active in, in life's uh, ambitions at that time than I should have been. And there was more than one time that I twisted my ankle. And, and I remember my mom used to make this solution where I would soak my ankle. And I remember she used Epsom salt. So, so it, uh, it, it can, salt works as a, as a healer. Uh, also, salt uh, has a way of rooting out or routing out the infection, and that needs to happen before the healing process can begin, before it can start. Salt is also an aseptic. It keeps infection from spreading. And so are true Christians. True Christians are a restraint to the corruption in the world. They are a restraint 
to the evil that is around us. And again, I say a lot of times I don't think we fully realize the potential we have, the, the potential that our character has on the world around us. For example, uh, have you ever noticed that your presence prevents the full expression of profanity? Uh, you, you've probably experienced it where somebody went into, went into a tirade and, and with some language they shouldn't have used, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they realized that you were there, and, and all of a sudden, they, they apologized. Uh, I work a company I work for as a sales staff, and one of them's a lady. Uh, and nothing against ladies, but I did discover that she's not always very ladylike. I think sometimes her language is rather crude. And uh, last week, uh, she made an expression about a sale that she had lost, and she used a rather crude expression, and all of a sudden she apologized. Uh, she, she realized she shouldn't have said that. The thought that went through my mind was, well, you know, she doesn't owe me an apology. She owes it to God, but I didn't say that. But the thought that went through my mind is, well, she was just being herself. But as God's people, as salt of the earth, we are a restraint upon those, those crude expressions of human nature that are not godly. And so we can have a positive effect upon their lives in, in that way without them realizing it. With that in mind, if people we know and interact with feel comfortable in telling crude stories or dirty jokes in our presence, if they feel comfortable doing that, we must also conclude that that is an indictment against our Christianity. I know we can't control other, other people's uh, uh, behavior necessarily, but if they feel comfortable expressing those types of things around us, we really need to evaluate our lives. I need to take an honest look at my life. Am I being the salt and the light that I should be? Now, as we think about salt, uh, salt to be effective is, is not something that should be used in a concentrated area or a concentrated spot, like when we... Uh, my wife thinks I have a phobia about salt. She says I salt everything. But, but I don't just take the salt shaker and put it all in one spot. I like to sprinkle it around. And so this salt, in order to be effective, shouldn't just be on one pile. Uh, I travel, my travel of, of, uh, on the way to work is along Route 501, obviously not this one. But there's a little village of Mount Etna that I go through on the way to work. And, and in the wintertime, the hill that leads up through the village is usually a pretty treacherous place. And last winter, one morning to work, it was just unusually slippery. And it's a state route. And I thought, well, where, where are these? Where's the cinder truck? But I got up to the top of the hill. And I don't know if the cinder truck was having a problem or not. But he had a huge pile of salt. Well, it did a tremendously effective job at that spot, but it wasn't very effective because it didn't affect everything that it should have. And so as Christians, this salt, I believe, is something that needs to be spread around. We don't just put it in a concentrated area. And uh, with that in mind, uh, where is our burden? 
in our Mennonite churches today to reach out into unchurched communities and to spread some of that salt, some of that influence. I think that's something we all need to be challenged with. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, lost its savor or lost its flavoring, how good is salt that has lost its flavoring? And I believe this is a sobering, sobering question that we need to ask ourselves as we apply it to our lives as being effective in today's world. Uh, have we lost our influence? Have we lost our effectiveness? Are you still a flavorful, salty Christian? We need to ask ourselves those kinds of questions. We need to examine our lives. Uh, let's think about the moral decline of America today. Has the witness of the church become ineffective? Has the witness of the church in general has lost its witness, lost its power? And the end result is wickedness abounds more and more. And I personally am absolutely convinced that that's why the moral decline keeps degenerating, is because the churches of America have lost their saltiness. They have lost their effectiveness. Salt is also a preservative. Uh, my mother used to cure ham, uh, and I remember how that ham tasted. It was different than the ham that you buy at the shopping centers today. Uh, in the last uh, days of my dad's life, uh, us children took care of, taking turns taking care of him, and my mom had made ham one evening. And my dad's expression was, doesn't anybody make ham the way they used to anymore? Uh, she had bought some at the store. It wasn't like she used to when she was younger. And so what she would do is take this salt. I was raised without electricity uh, in our home and uh, had, had no refrigeration except for an ice box over the summertime. And she would take this salt. Uh, it was... It was a thick, concentrated type of salt. I forget what it was called. Uh, and they would, she would rub this into the, into the ham. And then that would get hung in the attic until spring. And then, of course, spring came and started warming up. It needed to, be, needed to be used or canned. And so it preserved the ham for the winter. And so salt is a preservative. Uh, does our personal life deter sin? Uh, has our witness lost its effectiveness? Do we preserve our, have we preserved by, by our Christian integrity, by the lives that we live? That's a challenge we have. And if the church loses her witness, her influence, there is, there is nothing else to, to effectively deter sin. So civil government can be a, a restraint to a point but it's only dealing with the superficial. But the Christian church, God's individual Christian, God's individual followers can be a, a preservative. Latter part of verse 13, it says that if I lost its savor, it's good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under the, the foot of men. Good for nothing, of no value, useless. 
as a Christian without a witness is of no value. Salt that has lost its tastiness is like a Christian who has lost his effectiveness. As a matter of fact, it, it confuses more people than it helps if we have lost our saltiness. And so may we be challenged. The word cast out is, is the Greek word, uh, which I can't pronounce, carries with it the idea cast out, cast out with intensity. Uh, like, like you would fling out manure. That's the idea. In Revelation 3.16, it says, So then, because ye are lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The idea of being nauseating and disgusting. And so, how, are, how is our life? Is it a life that is effective? Is it a life that has flavor to it? Is it a life that's convincing to our world around us? The second point I'd like to look at is the light in verses 14 to 16. Light and illumination is the very nature of Christian character. We are each of us personally called to be illuminators, to be little lights, to shine where we are. We're not called to light our church steeple or uh, to have a manger scene or or to have lights in the window. That's not our calling. Our calling is to be individual lights, to radiate Jesus Christ in our everyday actions, our everyday behavior. And the scripture has a lot to, to say about that. I'd just like to turn to a few verses. Ephesians 5, verse 8. But ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Pray God that we would never betray that if we profess to be the children of God. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that you may be harmless, blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We are called to be illuminators. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. Ye are children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. 1 Peter 2.9 Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, that ye might show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We as God's people have a tremendous opportunity to portray the character of Christ to a lost and a dying world. And that light can be an inspiration, or at least, the very least, a source of conviction for those who are walking in darkness. Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19. But the path of the just is as a shining light that shineth more and more unto perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. And so do we realize the potential that we have? Our lives not only illuminate our own pathway, but they illuminate the pathway of others and help others to understand that there's more to this life than this life. Help them to understand that there is a God in heaven who desires to have their heart and desires to have their life. As a matter of fact, God's people are the only hope in this dark world. And so are we being what we should be? 
The church today, I believe, is a beacon in the night. And I trust that we're part of that beacon. The light of the world. The world is the cosmos, the organized world system. And the church of Christ in the 21st century is called to expose all that is anti-God and all that is evil. And so we have a tremendous task just to allow the character of Christ to flow through our lives. And of course, all of us know that light is very conspicuous. The darker it is, the more conspicuous it is. I've noticed here a few weeks ago, I was in northern Pennsylvania, a uh, particular area I was in, there were no dust at dawn lights. There were no artificial lights of any kind at that particular point, and looking into the sky, it just seemed that the Milky Way and the different stars just had a different, they just looked different. They, they shone, they were bright, they were clear. And I know there's a lot that muddies, there's a lot that muddies the Christian witness. But I pray that we might be like clear, shining lights in a dark night, encouraging others to walk in the way of God. And so kingdom people are a visible community. We can't get away from that fact. There is no mistaking the identity of a true Christian. The signals that a Christian gives should never waver. They should be a consistent light, a, con a consistent testimony. And so we, are, we become conspicuous in all of life. And, and that light can show itself in many different ways. It first of all shows itself in our attitudes about life, in our speech, our business dealings, the music we listen to, the types of recreation we seek, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the way we dress. I'm sorry for being so practical, but brothers and sisters, if the world cannot see the light of Christ in these practical areas, you're not being effective. You're not being effective. You're not gonna reach him for the gospel. And so we have a responsibility to flee into the invisible or to mix with the world so that we blend in with them so we're not as noticeable is to deny the discipleship of Christ. Christ has called each one of us to be a light for him in his own unique way. We see there in the latter part of verse 14, it says a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Cannot be hid. I had to think of this. Is there any such thing as secret discipleship? And I wasn't sure if I'd come up with a clear answer as I thought about it. Uh, I, I think I recognize that there would be some parts of the world that there would be secret disciples. And, and they would do it so that they, they aren't, especially in Muslim part of the world, they would do it so that they aren't killed, they aren't destroyed by family members. And so there may be a place for secret discipleship. However, in North America, where we have the privilege of openly, freely expressing our faith, I do not believe there's any room for secret discipleship. 
And if we become secret disciples in North America, I'm afraid we're ashamed of who we are and we're trying to deny who we are. And if that's our motivation, brothers and sisters, we cannot and will not be effective because the world can sense that. They can feel that. They know if you're genuine or if you're not. It cannot be hid. A lighted city illuminates vast expanses at a great distance. How far-reaching is your testimony? How obvious are you as a Christian? A few years ago, my wife and I were flying west, and I was in, we were in Chicago, and there's at the O'Hare Airport, and uh, waiting for a connecting flight, and, and this lady comes hurrying over to us, like, she acted like we were lifelong friends, and I didn't know who she was, and uh, she asked our names, and we asked her name, and oh, so it sounded, sounded like a Amish name. And then, but I didn't think no more of it. And as we talked, she said, by the way, I'm a Mennonite too. That's why I came over to you. Uh, Well, isn't this interesting? When we need to introduce the fact that we're Christians, there's something wrong. The world ought to be able to look at our lives and beyond a shadow of a doubt to recognize that we're a child of God that we belong to the king. Yes, it's great to verbalize our testimony. It's good to share Christ. But first of all, the most effective message on the world is as they observe our lives. Older minister in our congregation, maybe Brother Eli remembers him by the name of Peter Smith. Uh, He had revival meetings in a particular community that was a community church, and there was an elderly lady coming to that church for many years, not, never made a Christian commitment. The church folks would bring her to revivals from night to night. They'd pray for her at every prayer meeting, but she'd never responded. But on the last night of his meetings, this lady came forward and he counseled with her. And when he was done, she accepted Christ. He said to her, what is it that caused you to respond? What did I say in the sermon that caused you to respond? He said to me, he said, well, she got rid of my ego problem in a hurry. She said, I don't really remember anything you said tonight. The reason I responded is because I have been watching these people for 20 years. You can never underestimate your witness, the light, the effectiveness that, that, uh, that you can have. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. This light cannot be confined. And then, and I recognize that to a certain point, sometimes we struggle with this thing of embarrassment. But brothers and sisters, we, we cannot hide this light under the bushel of embarrassment. We cannot use that as an excuse. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so let's not be ashamed of who we are. When bushels get used, they cast shadows on our influence. When we try to hide... They cast shadows. They cause questions. 
And I, I think one of the two worst shadows that the conservative Mennonite church faces is materialism and worldliness. Those are shadows that have not been very effective in our witness to our communities. They have caused more questions to be asked than answers received. And so may you and I take an honest look at our lives. What kind of light am I? It is things like this that have paralyzed the cause of Christ and even encouraged the world to continue in darkness. In John chapter 8, verse 12, the words of Jesus. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We are reflected light. We reflect the character of Christ in our daily lives. And the closer we walk to him, the greater that reflection is, the greater that radiance is. And if we want to radiate heavenly sunlight in our, in our daily interaction in this dark world, we must quit lurking in the shadows of the world. That clouds our effectiveness and our witness. Yes, the world is the place we leave the, the witness, but I'm referring to his becoming part of its system. In verse 16, Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Here we see who, what, where, and why. The who is you. You. Let your light shine. The what is let your light shine. And the where is before men. And the why is two reasons. To glorify God and so that men may see. That's our challenge. See our good works. We don't express our works as a means to earn salvation. Our works are a merely an outflow, a natural outflow of that which we have already experienced in our hearts. It's a fruit of our lives. 1 Timothy 6 verse 18 says we're rich in good works. We're ready to respond to world relief. We're ready to respond to the needy in the community. Ephesians 2 10 it says that we were created unto good works. One brother told me not long ago he had three brothers that were ordained and he never was. But he said that I was created unto good works. And so he was not intimidated by the fact that he was the only brother in the family that wasn't ordained. All of us, all of us, we don't have to be ordained to be created unto good works. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, having your conversation or your lifestyle honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is talking about visible Christianity. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not something that blends in with the world. Christianity is not something that you can hide. It's visible. It's obvious. And they will glorify God in the day of visitation. The day when the Spirit of God visits them. Visible Christianity 
causes men to become God-conscious and aware of their needs. Some of the most eloquent sermons preached is a life of good works. They're powerful messages. The world is not going to read the Word of God. They may not even have a Bible, nor will they listen to a sermon. But they watch. They watch. They see. They observe. Paul says, You're our epistle, known and read of all men. The world has, is reached by what they see. Are you, are you a living sermon? The third point I'd like to look at is the law in verses 17 to 19. We see in this portion of Scripture the superiority of the Word of God. Verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I, I, am, come, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now we need to remember that Matthew was writing to the Jews. And the only way that Jesus the only way that he was going to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah was through the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus, Matthew uses the Old Testament scripture references. As a matter of fact, 13 times in the book of Matthew, it says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by, and it refers to the prophet. So Jesus fulfilled the law in four ways. One, he personally obeyed its rules in every way. He made good the promises and, and predictions of the prophets. In Jesus, all the types and shadows of the Old Testament are completed. He fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so the true intent of the law and the prophets was progressively re revealed to mankind through the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus Christ we come to an understanding of the will and purpose of God was in the Old Testament. And Jesus has come to show the way more fully. To fulfill, it means to fill full. And so... The fact that Jesus came to fulfill alerts us to the fact that Jesus Christ is the last and the final revelation to mankind. And brothers and sisters, if we miss the message of Jesus, we're going to miss it all. There will be no new revelations. And if there's any new revelations, mark it down in your little black book or inside your Bible or in your mind. It's false. There will be no new revelations. The last message of salvation that we'll ever hear is through Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the message of God to his people. In verse 18, For verily I say unto you, to heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Here we see the authority of the Word of God is enduring, and it is unchanging. It doesn't change. Just because we live in a new culture, just because we live in a new age, just because we live in an era out of a time where we look at things differently, it doesn't negate the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't change one iota. In Matthew 24, verse 35, 
Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The Bible never has been and never will be out of date. It is relevant for the 21st century. It is relevant for the issues in the lives of the people that you interact with. It is relevant for you personally. We notice that here in this verse. In, uh, in verse 18, he says, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The word jot is the Greek word iota. Not one iota. The intent of Scripture cannot be changed by altering one dot. A tittle is a tiny mark that would change the meaning of a Hebrew word. And I think the New International Version uh, brings it out the clearest. It says, Not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear or by any means change the Word of God. All the attacks of humanism, of heathenism, of higher criticism, of hell itself cannot and will not change the Word of God. It's enduring. It's enduring. We must believe that. And if you don't believe that, you won't make it through. You just simply won't make it through. In verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, even when we teach the word of God, we need to teach it as superior to anything else. Any other writings, any man's ideas, or any of our culture's philosophies. The word of God is supreme and it stands above all of those. If we have a low view of the Word of God, our position in the kingdom of heaven is in jeopardy. I repeat, if we have a low view of the Word of God, our position in the kingdom of heaven is in jeopardy. Let's read the verse again. Whosoever there shall break one of the least of these commandments and shall men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. God told Moses in the Old Testament saints, Deuteronomy 4, 2, Ye shall not add to the word, neither shall ye diminish aught. God told John the Revelator in the New Testament saints in Revelations 22, verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Chapter 5, verse 19 of the Sermon on the Mount alerts us to the fact that the least of these commandments or the least mentioned or the seemingly insignificant commandments are of equal value to all other commandments. We recognize the importance of loving God and loving our fellow man likewise. We recognize the importance of that. 
But brothers and sisters, all other doctrinal teachings hinge and move upon that doctrine. All are equally important. So we have such uh, teachings such as the headship covering, the sin of gluttony, calling someone a fool. We'll see that later this week. Sowing discord among the brethren. God spoke very little about these things. But those who teach that those things are unimportant invoke upon themselves the wrath and the judgment of God. Your attitude towards the precisely, clearly spoken word of God is very, very important. And I trust that we're a people that value all of its teachings equally. It's serious to break these commandments, but it is even more serious to teach that they're unnecessary. Look at the latter part of verse 19. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we see the contrast there of those who say all the teachings of the word important versus those who exclude some. Those who practice what they preach are truly great in the kingdom of heaven. Those who believe that all of God's word is on an equal plane, especially the New Testament, is going to be blessed in the kingdom of heaven. We recognize that the Old Testament is inspired by God, but it's not on the same plane. Our influence in the world can never rise any higher than our attitude towards the word of God. Where are you tonight? Where are you tonight? Where am I tonight? Do we value the spoken, revealed word of God? In conclusion, what about the effectiveness of your witness? What about your impact on the world or in your community? Has your light attracted others to Christ? Or is it so dim that it has befuddled or confused the observers of your life? What about your conformity to the Word of God? What about your submission to the Word of God? Does its authority have any effect upon your life? What kind of influence do you have on those around you? I trust that as we look at the word and we search our hearts tonight, that we'll open and we're honest with the spirit of God is revealing to each one of us individually. Before we give an invitation, let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father and our God, as we search your scripture, we become aware of some very weighty matters that involve us, that involve our attitude, involve our actions, involve our thoughts. And we pray, dear Father, if we have been here tonight, we've been seeking our own selfish ways and doing our own thing without conforming to your express will. We pray, Lord, you know, we all know that you know who we are. We are fully conscious and fully aware 
of those areas in our lives that we've failed, we've come short, or that we have rebelled against. We pray, dear Father, that you might help us to be open and honest and transparent before you this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.